go. Okay, gimel, camel, foot, gather, walk. It's been said by Charlie Garrett to always read this particular set of verses before reading the Bible. And here we are. Do good to your servant, and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Remove from me the scorn and contempt I keep, for I keep your statutes. No rulers sit together and slander me. Your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counsel. Okay, well, Sergio's sending me, he says we're live, so everything worked today. Thank you, Sergio. Uh, let's see here. Um, we got some prayer requests. Becky is looking for strength to attend to her grandchildren. They've moved back into town, and she wants to help raise them to know the Lord and, and uh, just to raise them properly. So uh, Sue Fisher has breast cancer and needs Jesus, too. So I should say she needs Jesus and has breast cancer. Put them in the proper order there. And so we'll add her into the prayers. And then Siri and Jean, she said his cancer is having some real setbacks and he fell and broke a rib and he can't lie down at the hospital. I think he's got to sit up or something. I'm not sure what. So uh, poor guy is just struggling right now. But uh, we've got those prayer requests. And then, um, uh, well, I guess we'll just uh, we'll read uh, This Day in Christian History and then we'll take a have a prayer and get started. Let's hear July 17th. It is. No, it's the 16th, isn't it? Yes, it is. July 16th. He had to decide whom to evangelize, the rich or the poor. Uh, July 16th, 1838, John Clough was born in western New York and his family later moved to Iowa. While in college, John gave his life to Christ and felt God calling him to spread the gospel to those who had never heard it. He was ordained as a Baptist minister in 1864 and he and his wife arrived in southern India as missionaries to the Telugu people in 1865. <clears throat> Eleven years earlier, at a pre-dawn prayer meeting on a hill overlooking the city of Angol, two missionaries and three Telugu Christian women had asked God to send a missionary to that city. The close arrived, arrival was answered to that prayer. In 1866, Clue founded the mission station at Angol, and immediately the gospel began to spread. A church was organized, and soon they had 28 new converts. Most of them were Madigas, who were outcasts. This presented Clue with a problem. Up to this point, all of the Christians in Angol were of the higher castes and did not associate with the outcasts. If Clue continued to accept his outcasts into the church, he would lose his higher castes. He and his wife sought the Lord's guidance separately on this issue, and both were led to 1 Corinthians 1, that God calls the lowly, weak, and ignorant rather than the noble, strong, and wise. From that point forward, Clue's evangelistic efforts concentrated on the outcasts. He endured insults and attempts upon his life by the higher castes for this decision. However, he persisted, and at the end of five years of working at the Angol Station, the Madigas Church had 1,500 members. Clue's approach to foreign missions was philosophically different from that of his time, he required converts to live by a few principles that he considered essential, but was lenient when it came to matters of cultural practice. He was not careful to impose Western culture upon the Telugus, 
unnecessarily. He felt the gospel would have the longest lasting effect and reach the most people if it was culturally relevant to the systems already in place. For example, Clue allowed his preachers to follow the Hindu guru model, like the spiritual teachers the people already respected. He placed heavy emphasis on the work of these indigenous preachers, for he felt the gospel would carry the greatest weight when it came from one of their own. He encouraged new converts to return to their social groups rather than removing them from their pagan environments as other missionaries attempted to get their converts to do. Churches were organized in the villages in accordance with indigenous social structures. He made the village elder a deacon in the church, which united the community and church leadership in an effort to Christianize the village leadership. Beginning in 1876, India suffered through three years of terrible famine and cholera. Clue worked tirelessly during this time to obtain supplies and health care for all, regardless of caste. By participating in a government relief project, he obtained the contract to oversee construction of four miles of the Buckingham Canal. He was able to employ many starving people, mostly Madigas, at good wages. During this time, he refused to accept new church members or baptize new converts because he didn't want people converting for the wrong motives. After the famine was over, Clue offered baptism to all who really believed. During a three-week period in 1878, almost 9,000 were baptized upon their profession of faith, with 2,222 on a single day. By the end of 1878, church membership at Angol had reached 12,000. John Clue worked with the Telugus for the next three decades, embracing the outcasts, working for their social good, and honoring the indigenous culture structures. When Clue left India shortly before his death in 1910, he left behind a church of 60,000 members. How important is it in world missions to embrace local cultural principles and customs rather than to impose one's own? To what extent should churches on the mission field resemble churches from which missionaries came? Do you feel the Clues made the right decision to evangelize the poor instead of the rich? I agree with him on all accounts. God chose despised things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all. Well, that's a pretty mar remarkable story there. Is that C or K? What? Clue. Clue. K-L-O-U-G-H. Clue. Um, all right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to uh, come into your presence, and we're certainly grateful for stories like the one we just heard. What a, what a man of faith to do the things he did and to make the choices he did during the time that he was living in. And even with the uh, beratement of other Christians who were of different orders and castes. And what a remarkable story. Thank you for that, Lord. And uh, I would ask that you would humble our own hearts and make us want to have the same attitude towards the people we come in contact with. Because it's not all the rich and famous that we need filling our churches, but the poor and the lowly and those who are the outcasts of society often need you the most and so we certainly pray that and we pray for the people we mentioned a moment ago and any others that are out there that are having their own trials and troubles my friend tony comes to mind he's having some surgery on his neck coming up soon and so we'll lift him up and lord we just uh thank you thank you for the chance to come into your wonderful presence and share your word and we're so looking forward to it and we hope that the book of galatians will be a blessing to many as we continue through it and we pray these things in jesus name Amen. Um, I have on a uh, shirt that says, Eternal Life Matters. 
Okay, that's a Charlie Missy design. She uh, she came up with that, um, and it's on a website for sale now. And I was so happy about it, I ordered three of them. So I have a black one, and I've got I picked the middle. I couldn't choose should I which one, so I just went right down the middle and took the gray one. And I have a white one. And so today at the Bible study, if you can answer this question, you can take your choice of black or white. Assuming it fits. Assume it'll be an extra large, so it's going to fit. Um, for then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they may all call on the name of the Lord. Where is that found? If you don't know offhand, start looking and at the end of the class or during the class, just shout it out. But if somebody can tell me where that is found, which I just read, you will get either a black or a white Eternal Life Matters t-shirt. And then we'll have one for the prophecy update on Sunday. Okay, so here we go. We're in Galatians um, chapter 2, verse 1. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. Okay, and I hadn't even turned there yet, so you're going to have to wait while I dally around. Before we get into Galatians 2.1, two weeks ago, Burke asked me a question, and I said I'd rather read from my commentary. It was on the traditions laid out from 1 Corinthians. And uh, I, these are just my comments. Very short on that particular word, but they are correct, so listen carefully. Uh, this is his compliment, and this is what sets the tone for further instruction, which will now be presented. In his statement, the word translated as traditions indicates something which has been delivered to them by the instruction of the apostles, not a tradition of the past which was of a cultural nature. These are issues which stem from the church itself and not something which he or another apostle brought along from their own pre-existing traditions. Lastly, in 1 Corinthians 11:17. We will read Paul's words, which say, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. This rebuke will in no way contradict his words of verse two, though the Corinthians had kept the traditions as they had received them, they will need correction concerning the issues of liberty and brotherhood. After he completes the thought he is now addressing, Paul will deal with those issues to ensure the church functions well within those parameters. And that's actually pretty good because they set traditions in India that we just read about. And so they're things that are set down, but they're not doctrines so much as just traditions. And these were apostolic traditions, you know, do this and do that. So there you go. Does that answer your question satisfactorily? Okay, good. I apologize. I had that last week and I just forgot about it. So shame on me. Um, I will read mine because I don't know the comparison of the verse. So I'll read mine and then uh, you can just tell me if it was close or not. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Close? Okay, good. They plagiarized each other. Good job, folks. All right, this is comments from Galatians 2, verse 1. If we rush, we might be able to get done with the book of Galatians today. Now, Paul now mentions a period of 14 years until he went up to Jerusalem. So there's this big gap there. There's a great debate as which starting period he is speaking of. His conversion or since his previous trip to Jerusalem. If from his conversion, he is stating that the period covers everything since verse 115. 115 said, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's, mother's womb and called me through his grace. Okay? Uh, if from his last trip to Jerusalem, it is speaking of the details of verse 118. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. So we don't know which it is. There's speculation, there's debate, etc. I said on a post on Facebook today, I took a photo of my lunch for Sergio. It was so good, I went to Publix and I got lunch. 
And then I posted on Facebook, I said, um, uh, I ate way too much for lunch today, so uh, Bible study may be a little bit noisy today. And everybody took that wrong. I meant I may be burping, and I just about did. If I do, I apologize. It was really good lunch. So um, anyway, uh, wow. If, if I do, just forgive me for that in advance, because it was a really big and a really good lunch. Um, okay, so uh, if, if from his trip to Jerusalem, it was details of 118. Either way, Paul says that he again went up to Jerusalem. This indicates that something important transpired during this visit, which occurred around 14 to 20 years after his conversion. The timing depends on how this verse and verse 118 are considered. In the interim, Paul had gone to Jerusalem. We can see Acts 11, 29, 30. Let's go there really quickly. Uh, Acts 11, 29, and 30. We'll just see what I'm referencing there. Acts 11 here, okay, and then 29 says... Uh, uh, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it uh, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So we have that. And then we also have in Acts 12, 25, it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Okay, so... That may be what's talking about on a mission trip for relief of the saints there during a famine. And yet, he doesn't mention this. This is passed over then because it does not bear on what he is speaking of in this letter to the Galatians. All he is concerned about with the Galatians is the Judaizers, the people turning away from proper doctrine, etc. So he skips over certain things. It doesn't mean that there's an error that somebody else wrote it or anything like that. He is focusing on the important details. However, the trip to Jerusalem, which he now refers to, goes directly to the heart of the matter concerning the apostasy of those in Galatia. For this reason, it says he went up again to Jerusalem. As always, noting the trip of a trip to Jerusalem includes the idea of ascending. It doesn't matter where you come from, you are always ascending when you're going to Jerusalem. You could be coming from the north, south, east, or west, you're always going up. You could be going from Mount Hermon, which is way taller than Jerusalem, and you're still going up to Jerusalem. Regardless of the point on the compass or the elevation from which one goes there, it is always considered a trip up. It is as if a throne in a court is being approached for a decision on a matter, and such is certainly the case here. The record of this trip is found in Acts chapter 15, and it is known as the... That's right, the council in Jerusalem. You got it backwards. I'm kidding. It doesn't matter which way you say it. Um, uh, he said Jerusalem council. I say council in Jerusalem. It's the same thing. Um, a matter of great importance was to be settled there. Unfortunately, despite the obvious nature of the ruling, it was very clear its edicts were ignored by those in Galatia, and they have continued to be ignored by the foolish since then. On this trip, Paul notes that he went with Barnabas. As a fellow apostle and a central figure in the early workings of the church, it was a logical choice to make. Barnabas was a Jew, and his presence filled an important point for those at the council to consider. Had he participated in Paul's evangelistic efforts, and or I'm sorry, he had participated in Paul's evangelistic efforts, and he was able to confirm the message which Paul preached among the Gentiles. But to ensure that the message was perfectly understood, Paul next notes that he also took Titus, that's his words from here, with him. The reason for bringing Titus along is to confirm the gospel message which Paul preached elsewhere. 
It will be explained precisely in the coming verses. Titus is not specifically mentioned as having gone with Paul in Acts chapter 15, but the account does say that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them went up to Jerusalem. So there's no contradiction there either. Titus would be among these certain others. And his importance in having gone will now be seen in the epistle to the Galatians. I got a life application for you here. I said this to somebody today. My friend Brian called and we talked for a while. He had some questions about Calvinism, where it's wrong. And he's attending a, a church where the pastor leans toward Calvinist theology. And he said, should I leave the church? And we talked about that and why I felt the way I did. And I said, um, uh, you know, we talked about some other things. He wanted to know about dispensations and, and uh, you know, just various issues. And I directed him especially to the doctrine sermons, which I know will help him out with each one of the points we talked about. And then uh, uh, the main problem that he had wasn't just Calvinist approach, which is obviously poor at best, but um, the uh, main problem that he had was that the idea of the church replacing Israel, which isn't so much Calvinism, it's just Reformed theology in general. And I directed him to the Leviticus 26 sermon, the last one, uh, verses 40 through 46, I think it is. And I said, there's no way that that can be interpreted any other way. There's no way. If you study that particular passage or you could just go watch the sermon, you're going to see it. But at the end of the day, he said, I just, I need to get more focused on the word. And he said, you know, that's what I need. And I understand that, uh, that people in the church are nice people, et cetera, but I want to know the meat of things. And the exact words I said to him was, Bible study is hard work. And here it is, life application. Bible study is hard work. Sometimes piecing together a timeline of the events of what occurs seems like a lot of hard work with no set gain to be realized. I went through that with this coming Sunday's sermon, which is on the east side of the Jordan. At the beginning of the sermon, I don't think I finished the first verse, and on that Monday morning, I probably spent two to four hours somewhere in there to resolve one very small comment that a scholar made on it. The Cambridge scholars made a comment on a verse, and I spent two to four hours resolving that because one, it's important, and two, it will settle in your minds ever reading a commentary like that that you are not reading a book with error or contradiction. So sometimes the smallest little thing can actually have huge ramifications for people's ideas about the Bible or about their concept of God. And so it seems like a lot of hard work with no set gain to be realized, just like trying to figure out when was Paul here, when was Paul there, who was with him, and etc. However, this is not the case. The Bible rewards those who diligently seek the Lord through it. Our doctrine is only as good as our willingness to pursue what is sound. Stopping right there, this week I was typing a commentary on, yes, we're still in 3 John up until today, but I started typing Jude 10 days ago, and I typed a commentary on Jude... I'll read it to you rather than just telling you what it says. Um, I typed it on uh, Jude 10, um, uh, 8. I'm sorry, Jude 1, 8 uh, yesterday. I did 1, 9 today. But anyway, likewise, also, those dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Okay? That one verse, after studying it in, in the context of Jude, which I had not done before in my previous study, it was more kind of a happy you know, make it feel good uh, devotional I sent out. But um, uh, that one verse right there, I'll read it again. Likewise, also those dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries, completely refutes the idea of the Nephilim 
being angels that slept with men. Just so you know, that's not a true story. You already know I, I don't hold to that. It's goofy at best. It's bad theology, but that right there, taken in its proper context, as you will see in 10 days, completely refutes verse it. Verse is what? Um, it's uh, verse Jude 1, 8. Okay, but you have to take it in context with what he says. I'll read you from verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So what they're saying is the Nephilim conspiracy, conspiracy theorists say that the angels left their own abode means that they left their natural station and went down and slept with human women. Okay, that's they, that's, they tie that in there. And the reason why they do that is because verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So what they do is they take verse 6 and they tie it in with verse 7. And I said in the sermon on the Nephilim years and years ago that there's that's complete uh, presupposition because you could take it and tie verse 6 with verse 5, being called out of Egypt. I said, they're picking something that doesn't make any sense. He's giving three logical points, and one of them happens to be one thing, and one happens to be another. But if you want to know why their analysis is incorrect, wait 10 days, and, or just start reading the commentary tomorrow morning. We're starting the commentary on Jude. I do an introduction, and then for the next uh, 14 days after that, we'll be doing, um, or is it, no, I'm sorry, I said 14. It's um, 25 uh, days after that. We'll be doing one verse at a time, the Jude commentary. But when you get to verse five through nine, you'll find out why the Nephilim conspiracy theory is just that. It's a conspiracy theory. It is incorrect. I've got another thing that my friend Benzer in um, uh, England, they were here, Benzer and Sandra, you remember they were here? Okay, he had a very insightful analysis on the Nephilim from Job chapter one, which is the verse that everybody uses to justify that the Nephilim are fallen angels, if you know what I'm talking about from Job chapter one. And what he said completely refutes that. My mother said no, so we're going to take a quick break just so that my mother isn't confused. And we're going to read Job chapter 1 and the verse that everybody uses to justify that angels sleep with men. Okay, Job chapter 1. It was a very insightful thing he said, and I will do a short commentary on it on, at some time. I've been waiting for the right time. It hasn't come yet, but here it goes. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, where is it? Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, B'nai Ha-Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The only other time you're going to see the term B'nai Ha-Elohim is in Genesis 6, where it says, and the sons of uh, God went in with the sons of men, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so they tied the two together, and they say that, see, that proves that women are sleeping with uh, and then every normal scholar that continues citing Job, I think if I can't find it really quickly, then I'm not going to worry about it. I'll give you the verse later, but I think it's Job 26 something. They cite um, something else from there, Job 26. Um, no, yes, the morning stars. Where is that? Um, uh, what's that? Yeah, well, yeah, somewhere in there. And they tie that in and they say, see, this equates to Job chapter one, and it doesn't. And um, Benzer over in England suggested this to me, and I said, well, we're going to check this out before we 
you know, I'm not going to just make a, a, yeah, I agree with you because it fits my presupposition. And so we went through 350 instances of Ha Elohim, the God in the Bible. And there's no doubt that it is not speaking of angels sleeping with men. But I wanted to go through all 350 instances, and it was a long time. He came to just sit and talk and have a good time with us, and we spent our whole time sitting there in front of the computer uh, looking up instances, because I'm not going to rush into a judgment on something because I believe it's correct. I want to know that it's correct. So just so you know, uh, the Nephilim theory is is bogus as far as that's concerned. Nephilim, uh, what it's referring to, if you want to know what it means, go back and watch the uh, sermon from Genesis 6. We don't need to do any more on that. But the whole point of what I was saying was Bible study is hard work. People like sensation. They like easy answers. They like to have their ears tickled. And so they will immediately gravitate towards something that's very simple, like angels sleep with men. Okay. And plus, that's not possible because angels are, anybody? Spirits. Spirits. They are ministering spirits. They have no corporal bodies, okay? Uh, they do not procreate in any way. And Ben sort of, uh, sent me a commentary on my Jude commentary a day ago, which I sent to him. Just, I want you to read this. And he came back and he said something else that was very insightful is if um, uh, angels were created to live forever, there would be no need for them to have children, okay? Doesn't make any sense. Why would they need to have children to replace them? But we'll go on without any more on the Nephilim. Don't ask any more because I'll just get on another sidetrack. I want you to read Jude chapter 2, verse 1. There is no Jude 2, 1. <laughs> I know. You said, you, probably go, you said Jude 1, verse 7 or whatever. Yeah, I know. Well, that's why when I make my commentaries, I always say dash 13, dash 14. Yeah. But when you put it in, you can't do it. You have to have a 1 in front of it okay. I, I, on some computer programs. They require it. And that's why a lot of people will say Job 117. Okay. That's right. But when I do the commentaries, I always say dash 1, dash 2, because there is no first chapter. But yeah, very good. Okay, so uh, back to our life application. I'll read that again. Bible studies, hard work, sometimes piecing together a timeline of the events of what occurs seems like a lot of hard work with no set gain to be realized. However, this is not the case. The Bible rewards those who diligently seek the Lord through it. Our doctrine is only as good as our willingness to pursue what is sound. Picking and choosing what we believe based on random verses will inevitably lead to faulty doctrine. It's not maybe, it will, always. If you say, I want to believe this and so I'm going to make this fit my preconceived notion, you will have faulty doctrine. There's no way around that. But it is so much easier than diligently studying the word. Hence, most people don't come to Bible study. How many people do we have here right now compared to Sunday morning? And if you go online, I don't know how many people attend online, but I bet you the numbers are way less than Sunday morning. That's my guess. If we lose power, we're gonna lose streaming. So I'll tell that to the streaming people right now. We've got a great thunderstorm going on right now. And if we lose power, don't panic. I'll just upload this later. Um, we're saving it by, uh, what do you call it, recording. But that'll go down too, so you'll only get whatever. Uh, don't panic, though, if we lose streaming. Okay. Um, however, easy is only rewarding in the short term. In the long run, having right doctrine will receive eternal rewards. Okay. So that's what you want to pursue. You want to open the word. You want to think about it. You want to contemplate it. You want to study it. Don't just take Charlie Garrett's opinion. Watch other commentaries on the same passage. Read other commentaries on the same passage. If you know there's a, a preacher out there that's competent and he's preached on that passage, go watch it because I may be wrong. And then you're basing your theology on something that stupid Charlie Garrett has said. I would never purposely teach something that's wrong. I'll tell you that right now. But 
I may be wrong. And so it's better to have a well-rounded theology, and that means you've got a lot of hard work to do to make sure that you are believing the right thing. Okay, 2-2. Two, two. That wind is really picking up out there. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel I preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders, for I fear that I was running and had run my race in vain. Okay, little different, not much. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately, privately to those who were of reputation. Little different there. Lest by any means I might had might run or had run in vain. So it's close, but a little bit different. Um, the uh, uh, I just had an idea and it left my mind. Okay, this is referring to Paul's trip to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. That's in Acts chapter 15. That's correct. Okay, Paul received revelation that was uh, that there was trouble coming, and eventually, according to Acts 15 verse 2, it turned out that it would be a great dissension within the church, so much so that we'll go ahead and turn to Acts 15 and we'll read this. Starting in verse 1, it says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now, that brings to mind something right now is that in saying that you must go back and observe the law of Moses, you are saying that what Jesus did was incomplete. It was insufficient. Everybody understand that? There's no doubt about that. Okay, They are saying, they are making an appeal that you're a believer in Jesus, but Jesus is not really the end of anything. Okay, That's an important distinction, and I think it's John 8. Let me go there now. Uh, John, yeah, I don't know how you could equate what he says here in the book of John, and, you know, these Jews coming from Judea would have known the words of Jesus. I mean, John wasn't written at this time, but uh, it says there, um, I'm just going to start in verse 21, and I'm going to read for a while. Then Jesus said again to them, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin, okay? Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, the idea of the Messiah is found in the Old Testament. I'm talking about that he would be the God-man. It's very clearly presented there. He just needed to come to make it actually a, a believable concept to the people. But it's right there, Isaiah, what, 9, uh, 6, for example. There's no doubt that it says he will be El Gabor, the mighty God. He will be the everlasting father, Abiyad, okay? So, there's no doubt that the Old Testament taught these things. The people needed Jesus to come and show them. So he says, you'll die in your sins. Therefore, I said, you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. This brings up two obvious points. The first point is that they are reinserting the law, which he is saying, I am the fulfillment of. And I'll get to that again in a second, I think, in John 8. I want to go through it for a second. The second thing it brings up, and it brings it up full face, Right there. I don't know how you can read the book of John and be a John Hagee and stand in the pulpit and say the Jews are saved by the observance of the Torah. Because he said right there, this is Jesus speaking. This isn't somebody analyzing Jesus. This is him. Therefore, I said that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will 
die in your sins. And there is John Hagee out there telling people that they do not need to evangelize the Jews because they are saved through Torah observance. That's the same exact same doctrine as the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church says that Jews do not be, need to be evangelized because they are saved through the covenant with the fathers, meaning the Mosaic Covenant. Jesus himself said that that is not true. Okay, so that blows that one out of the water. I can't believe if we're not going to lose power today. That lightning is just really coming down. Anyway, we'll go on and we'll see if I can make a point about the other one here in a second. Um, then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said, just what I've said, been saying to you from the beginning. He's already been telling them in John chapter 5 that the scriptures Moses wrote about me. He spoke of me, but you won't come to me to have eternal life, right? I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, man then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself, but, my, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. I'm going to skip down to verse 32, uh, verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then he goes down a little bit. Oh, I'll keep reading. 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides in the house forever. Verse 36, here it is, as clear as it can be, book of Galatians in a nutshell. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. How is sin imputed? Through law. That's right. Sin can only be imputed through law. If the Judaizers come into the area of Galatia and tell the Galatians that have already been saved, by the way, that you need to observe the law of Moses in order to be saved, and it's the law that imputes sin, then that's setting aside the work of Christ. Because he said right there, a slave does not abide in the house forever. You are a slave to sin. Oh, not this week. I think next week. I, I think it is. It would be the end of this chapter this week. So next week will be chapter five. The title of the sermon is, get this, here's the law of Moses, from bondage to bondage. Did they come to freedom when they went into the law of Moses? They left Egypt, didn't they? from bondage to bondage. So we'll get to that sermon here in another week and a half. And when we get there, you're going to see it's exactly what Galatians is talking about as well. And it's what Jesus is saying right here. If you come in and you tell somebody you must observe the law of Moses, like they're doing in Acts chapter 15, which I just read you, which got me onto this track, is that you are not free at all. You're a slave because you are under the bondage, the yoke of the law. And if you're under the yoke of the law, sin is imputed. And if sin is imputed, you cannot have eternal life. Because the wages of sin is death. Everybody see that? It, it is so clear. It is so obvious. But so it, it, that what Jesus says there in John 8 takes care of two problems. It takes care of the John Hagee, Roman Catholic, Jews can be saved apart from Christ. And it also takes care of the notion that you have to observe any of the law of Moses at all. Hebrew roots, movement, Judaizers, whatever. Stay away from that bad theology because that is self-condemning or it's condemning of somebody else in the case of Hagee. Okay, yes. 
They said they weren't in bondage, but they were in bondage they, to Babylon. And that's right. They were in bondage at the time. They were still under foreign rule. They were under bondage in more ways than one. You're absolutely right. They're walking around. You know, it's like the guy that is walking down the road, and you wonder, what's that guy doing? He's insane. Well, these guys were... They were literally crazy. They're not thinking clearly. They're living in bondage under foreign governments. They're living in bondage under the law of Moses. Christ comes and says, I am the fulfillment of these things, and you won't come to me to have eternal life. And then he explicitly says, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. I, I wish that people would take Jesus at his word. Sometimes theology is not that hard, and in cases like that, it's not. It's evident on the surface. But this is the point of the book of Galatians and why it's such... Such an important book to get right. So, 2-2, uh, we were just talking about Acts 15-2. They went there. They said that, uh, you know, they had this great dissension, and so they had that council in Jerusalem. Having received revelation of this kind was certainly to quiet him and give him the confidence he needed to know that he, Paul, was on the right path. His words in this verse show us this. Upon his arrival in Jerusalem, he, as he says, communicated to them. The communication was to those who would soon render a decision at the council in Jerusalem. Paul first spoke in private with them in order to ensure they knew in advance that a dissension had arisen. Thus, they would be prepared for the challenge that lay ahead in the deliberations. He wasn't trying to dissuade anybody's opinion. He was simply saying that this is something that has happened. I want you to know there's a, there's a dissension. He probably said, this is what they're telling the people up there. This is what I've been preaching you need to make a decision, and we will lay out our case in front of the whole council. So it, that's what's going on there. What he specifically communicated was, as he says in this verse, the gospel which I preach to the Gentiles. This is written in the present tense, and it's done for a very good reason. The gospel he had preached, the gospel he had presented to the leaders and the council of Jerusalem, the gospel that he continued to preach after that, and the gospel he still preached, even to the Galatians at the present time, was a consistent message. It was one gospel, and even in the present tense, this is what I am preaching, okay? It had not changed. It was the same gospel that he communicated privately to those who were of reputation. These words are also in the present tense in the Greek. Therefore, they are more appropriately rendered to them of repute. Again, the present tense is necessary to understand that those who approved of his gospel message to the Gentiles were the same people who were still the ones who continued to approve of it at that time. Paul is telling the Galatians all of these things, trying to remind them that he's not been trying to sway them wrong. He's never steered them in the wrong direction. And everything that he has said to them has been very consistent, even to the current day. And the people down in Jerusalem, if you don't believe me, take a delegate, send them down there and have them talk to these people, because they will tell you that what I'm telling you right now to this present time is correct. You can see the stress in his words, the angst in his words, because of the situation that has arisen in this church, arisen in this church, because some foolish people have come in and tried to take away the purity of the gospel. And, you know, if there's anything that we can tolerate in a church, it is not a changing of the gospel. There's one gospel, and it is presented to Jew and to Gentile, not two different gospels, hyperdispensationalism, which is something I talked to my friend about, Brian about today. I said, if you get into watching studies on dispensationalism, and if you hear that there is a separate gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles, I expect you to turn that off. 
because you're going to get pulled down a wrong path and it's a very dangerous path. It's a heretical path. Anyway, Paul is showing that false apostles claim that they had the true gospel, which it was, which they claimed it was, in fact, was false. They may have pretended to come under the authority of the leaders in Jerusalem, but this was not so. They had come without the approval of the authority in Jerusalem. The same people who were the authorities in Jerusalem at that time were still the authorities in Jerusalem at the time Paul is writing to the Galatians. And it was Paul and his gospel message that they backed. If they had any doubt of this at all, all they would need to do is send a message to inquire whether this was true or not. And even, as I said a moment ago, even sure would be to take a person and put him on a paid trip down to Jerusalem and have him ask in person and have him come back. That way there's no thought that maybe somebody manipulated the message or you got a false letter or something. Have the guy go talk to him personally and they will tell you. However, Paul's words, Paul's continued words of the letter will make even that unnecessary. By the time he is done, they will see that his message was the very intent of God for the Gentile people. And the reason why I say the Gentile people here does not mean that it isn't for the Jewish people too. Not two different Gospels. It's that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He was specifically chosen for his qualifications, which we've talked about in past weeks. It's not that he has a different message. It's not that he's telling them something that doesn't apply to the Jews. It is because that is his area of qualification, is being able to communicate to the Gentiles. That's why he was selected. Okay, to finish this verse, he notes that his meeting with these leaders was to find out if by any means I might run or had run in vain. That's the words of this verse. The intent of Paul's visit and the calling of a council by the leaders was to settle the matter of Paul's gospel as he conveyed it to the Gentiles. Therefore, his words here are not questioning the possibility that his labors were in vain. That's not what he's saying, as if he was the one who was misguided all along. Instead, his words are directed as to whether or not they understood and supported his work. He was commissioned by the Lord Jesus. He knew that what he was teaching was correct. He was making sure that they were on the same party line as he was, okay? As if they were not yet satisfied in their understanding of the message he preached. Vincent's word studies paraphrases the verse and then explains it thus. This is a paraphrase of the verse by Vincent's and his explanation. I laid before them that gospel, which I preached to the Gentiles, that they might examine and settle for themselves the question whether I am not possibly running or had run in vain. The investigation was to be for their satisfaction, not Paul's satisfaction. Okay, that's what's going on here. Paul was not thinking, oh, I've run my race in vain because my message is wrong. I've run my race in vain because what I'm teaching isn't what they're teaching, and now we've got a conflict, and one of us is going to have to be silenced, okay? And it turned out that they were all in 100% agreement of this. We can even go back here really quickly, just because we may never get back to the book of Acts. And it says here, um, uh, they came together, men and brethren. Okay, we'll just start in verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, this is Peter now. Peter arose. What? Oh, Acts 15. Peter arose. Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, 
the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That was in Acts chapter 10. He went down to the house of Cornelius, right? So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, here it goes. This is Peter. This is the guy that is going to be shown to waffle in chapter 2 of Galatians. All right. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke, meaning the law of Moses, a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He acknowledges right there in Acts chapter 15 that the law was a yoke and they could not bear it, which is the entire point of the law of Moses, was to lead them as a tutor to Christ. Paul explains that 100% perfectly in the book of Galatians. But right now, he says it's a yoke and we couldn't bear that yoke. But we believe, this is Peter still, that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. One gospel, Jew and Gentile. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles, etc. And it goes on from there. But the important point there to me at this point that we're talking about is that Peter acknowledged that the law was a yoke, that they could not bear that yoke, and that they were saved in the same way as the Gentiles that he just spoke about down in uh, Caesarea. Cornelius and his family were saved by faith in Jesus, not by any works of the law at all. No works because the law is annulled in Christ. Okay, so we'll continue on. Life application. Paul's message was presented to the leaders in Jerusalem for evaluation. The Bible shows that what he preached to the Gentiles was proper. He was given their full support and approval. Therefore, to understand proper church age doctrine, we are to turn to the letters of Paul. If this is not so, then we have no sure word at all. Hey, that rhymed. Um, but be sure to stand fast on what Paul teaches. It is the message approved by the Lord Jesus for the proper conduct of our Christian walk. And as I said, if this is not so, we have no sure word at all. I've said this before. I might have even said it very recently. I know I said it to somebody, and maybe it was in the class here. If you take Paul's letters out, then you have to take out the Gospel of Luke, because Luke talks about Paul in the book of Acts. Okay, and if that's so, then you have to take out the book of Acts. And if you take out Paul, then you also have to take out Peter, because Peter said that he agreed with Paul's epistles. Okay, he said they are inspired. They're on the same level as all other inspired documents. So Peter is out, Luke is out, Acts is out, all of Paul's letters are out. But if Peter is out, then the Gospel of Mark is out, because Mark was the protege to Peter. If the Gospel of Mark is out, then also the Gospel of Luke and uh, Matthew are out because they're synoptic gospels coming from the same viewpoint and giving the same information, but in a varied way. Okay, so you have to take all of those out. If you have to take that out, then you also have to take out John because John was one of the three inner circle with Peter and um, James, right? So you've now gotten rid of all four gospels. You've gotten rid of Acts. You've gotten rid of all of the epistles up to James. James is the Lord's brother. Um, there's a reason why we need to take that out, and the book of Hebrews as well. The entire thing falls apart if you take out Paul. Everything in Scripture falls apart. And our doctrine for the church age, all of the Bible is inspired. All of it applies to us in a certain way, but not, not all of it is relevant in the same way. Our doctrine in the church age, first and foremost, comes from the epistles of Paul. Okay, that is a certainty. 
the book of John is written to Jew and Gentile, unlike the Synoptic Gospels, which are written to the Jew under the law. Okay, they still, we still read them, we still are edified by them, but they are under the dispensation of law. John is not written that way. In the books of John and Jude, the epistles of John and Jude are like the Gospel of John. They are written to the whole church, Jew and Gentile without distinction, whereas Hebrews, James, and Peter are written to the Jews within the church. So you have to understand the context of everything you're reading, and as long as you understand that context, then you can say, I know this applies to me, but it is specifically addressed to the Jew for this reason, or it's specifically addressed to the Gentile for this reason. It's complicated, but it all fits because it is the Word of God. Okay, context actually matters when you're evaluating the Bible. Please remember that always. Okay, so we are now in verse 2-3. Yet, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. That's it. Yep, that's it. And it's, all they did was change the uh, clauses around in that one, but it says exactly the same thing. Uh, Titus was a, a what? He was a Greek. That, a Greek is not what? Not he's not Jewish. Okay, everybody's got that. Titus is a Greek. He's not a Jew. And yet he was not compelled to be circumcised. Everybody got that? What does the law of Moses say? You must be circumcised. Now, Jesus speaks about that as well in the book of John. He says, uh, you circumcise on the eighth day, even if it's a Sabbath. And he first says that uh, because of it, Moses gave you circumcision. And then he qualifies that and he says it wasn't... Uh, given it was given by the fathers but what he means and he wanted to clarify himself so that nobody could accuse him later is that moses also gave them circumcision the fathers were mandated it it came from abraham but moses codified it into the law of moses in the book of leviticus you must circumcise on the eighth day but you are not allowed to work on a sabbath day under any way shape or form and yet if it's the eighth day for the circumcising a child you are to circumcise that child on the eighth day. You violate the Sabbath in order to keep that particular commandment. So within the law are certain commands which have to be prioritized. And the same is true with the Levitical service. Okay, Jesus speaks about that in the Gospels, and also it's very clear even in the uh, uh, Law of Moses itself that the Levitical service goes on uninterrupted. And guess what? It is confirmed in the book of... Um, uh, what is it, Kings? Kings or Chronicles, one of them where it confirms that they came off on the Sabbath, and uh, guess what? Athaliah was killed. Well, those that are coming off on the Sabbath and blah, 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 they are. it's confirming that some duties within the law of Moses take precedence over the Sabbath. Everybody got that? Okay, so these are all points of theology that you have to remember because we can't get stuck in one thing. What did uh, Ellen G. White do of the uh, Seventh-day Adventists? She elevated the Sabbath above everything else, when actually the Sabbath is relegated below other things. She said that it is the most important of all God's commandments, okay? Showing her to be a heretic in more than one way, but anyway, um, uh, going on, okay. Uh, what were we, okay, so Titus is a, a Greek. He was not circumcised. Circumcision was mandated by the law of Moses, okay? So, through verses three and five, or I'm sorry, though, verses 3 and 5 are parenthetical. The very core of the message of the Galatians is found in this verse right here, right now. Paul had now gone up to Jerusalem in order to meet with the leaders there. This is something that he did, Acts chapter 15. When he went there, he took Titus with him. Titus was a Greek and a saved believer in Jesus Christ. 
He was with Paul at the meeting, and yet he was not compelled to be circumcised. He could stop this epistle right there and not give any more information, and it would be enough for an intelligent person that understands what Paul is saying to say, I get it. I get it. And to just end his conversation with the Judaizers and the Hebrew Roots Movement people. He could stop right there. He didn't. He goes through very important verses. I'm not trying to diminish any of it, but I'm saying that this point right here that he is making is as important, and it settles the matter that he's going to be speaking about for the rest of the book of Galatians. Okay? From this verse, Paul will carefully and methodically detail his argument concerning the bondage of the law of Moses. The truth that circumcision is not required for salvation. As I said, an intelligent person could sit here and read that right now and say, it's not required for salvation, and therefore I don't need to go any further. If it's required under the law, which it is, and it, he didn't need to do it, and yet he's saved, then it's not required for salvation. But Paul is not going to stop with this because a lot of people are not clear thinkers. They need to be told this explicitly. And guess what? We've got six chapters of instruction in the book of Galatians. Five of them come after what we're reading right now. And people still don't get it. That's the sad part about this is because people get a preconceived notion in their head. They're told by somebody, yeah, you need to follow the Torah. And, oh, what's a Torah? Well, that's the law. And, you know, they use Hebrew words to make it sound like it's more important than anything in the world. And all of a sudden they're pulling on their face and saying, oh, I've got to, I've got to follow the Torah. And they start wearing beanie caps and little seat seats on their clothing and, you know, walking around and acting like numbskulls. I can't understand how people can't get the book of Galatians, but I'm not trying to diminish people in particular. I'm just saying in general, in general, okay? I'm not trying to be belittling of people, but it's so clear. Okay, we'll go on. From this verse, Paul will carefully and methodically detail his argument concerning the bondage of the law of Moses, the truth that circumcision is not required for salvation, and the fact that this truth is even seen in Abraham, the father of the Hebrew, the faith of the Hebrew people. Paul will use circumcision as a benchmark in his argument against any deed of the law of Moses being required for salvation. What that means, benchmark means that this is the standard. Everything else is applied in relation to the benchmark. Okay, so not eating pork is in the law of Moses. The benchmark of circumcision is already given. So the not eating pork must not apply, right? Everybody understand that benchmark speaks for everything else. You must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And not only you must be circumcised according to the law of Moses, you are even to violate the law of Moses in order, or a precept of the law of Moses in order to circumcise on the Sabbath. It is the benchmark. If you are not circumcised, you are not a Jew. It's very clear from Genesis chapter 17 that if you are not circumcised on the eighth day, you are to be removed from the house. You are out. You are expelled from the, the fellowship and the congregation. It is that serious. And yet Paul says that you are not required to do that. It is the benchmark. That means every other precept of the law of Moses, it doesn't matter what precept it is, that is found in the law of Moses is nullified because circumcision is nullified. Everybody see that? That's why I use the term benchmark. It speaks for every other precept within the law. Okay? Once again, I don't want people to get upset the Ten Commandments are within the law of Moses. Why are we obligated to observe some of the Ten Commandments today? Repeated. They're repeated in the New Covenant. Okay, the Sabbath is not repeated in the New Covenant because if we're obligated to observe the Ten Commandments, 
then the next obvious question to every person in every Christian church in America today is, why are you meeting on Sunday? You're violating the law. Got that? If the law of Moses, or I'm sorry, if the Ten Commandments are still valid and binding today, then you are violating the law of Moses every single time you do anything on a Sabbath. Okay, but the the benchmark is circumcision. It takes care of every other issue found within the law of Moses. Did I say something wrong? No. Okay, I heard a grunt over there, so I thought maybe I said something wrong because I I do I say words backwards and names wrong names and stuff, and he's always catching me. So okay, um, so uh, it, circumcision is the benchmark. If this most literally most important aspect of being brought into the covenant people was not considered necessary for salvation through Jesus Christ. And it's the most important of all of them. I mean, right there at the Exodus, if a person wants to become a Jew, you circumcise him, he observes the Passover, and he is considered a native of the community from that time on. That is it, okay? This most important aspect of being brought into the covenant people is not considered necessary for salvation through Jesus Christ, then nothing else would be as well. Circumcision goes back, oh, here it is, Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14. Okay, I'm glad we're doing this because I cite things and I don't want to stop because I got to train the thought on my mind and I'm glad that I cited it here so we can go back and make sure that we read it. All right, so we're in Exodus chapter 17 and then we're going to go to verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Okay, here's an obvious question for everybody to consider. Do women need to be circumcised? Are women saved? Everybody see that? Obviously, this sign is picturing something else, and he even says it right here. It is a sign between you and me. The word is ot. Anytime you see the word oat, it is something that pictures something else, okay? A sign is anticipating, it's representing something else. It is not a thing in and of itself, okay? Everybody understand that? How do we know that? Because there was circumcision practiced in other Middle Eastern peoples. They know this, okay? Were those people a part of the covenant? No, okay? So it is a sign of something else. It is not that you are saved because of that. And that's the way Jews, even to this day, take it. This is my sign that I'm of the covenant. Well, no, you missed what the sign is picturing. You missed Jesus, okay? The sign pictures Jesus. We'll talk about that in just a second. I've said it a million times, but maybe you haven't heard it. Okay, sign between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay. The sign is looking to something else. And as all signs do in the Bible, eventually they look to what? Jesus. Okay. The picture is, and I know I say it after almost every sermon, so if you see in the sermons, you know what I'm going to say. But if somebody's listening and has never heard this, it's very simple. Adam fell. 
Adam was created perfect. He had no fault. He faulted. Sin entered the world. He fell. Sin is now in Adam. Sin travels to child. That is the doctrine known as original sin. That is why in Genesis chapter 4, the first thing it does is it focuses on what? Cain and Abel. It doesn't talk about anything else except all of a sudden Cain is killing Abel. But even before that, it says that they came and did something before the Lord. They brought an offering. That's right. One brought a blood sacrifice. One brought the best of his grain or the, the grain of his field or whatever. Okay. Implying that they need to be saved. They need to be forgiven of their sins. So immediately, immediately after Genesis chapter 3, the fall, they're expelled from Eden. The hint of original sin is already noted. And that goes all the way through the Bible. It is very clear. John 3.18 is explicit in that, as is Psalm 51. I think it's verse 4. I was conceived in sin from my mother's womb. I, I, was, I blew that. But anyway, Psalm 51.4. Okay. Original sin. Sin travels from father to child. It does not travel through the mother. Sin travels from father to child, okay? Because that's the case, and because every single human being on this planet has a father, every human being on this planet has inherited sin. The sign of circumcision is cutting the foreskin of the male. It's a picture. I am going to cut the transfer of sin from father to child. And so when Christ was born, he was born of a woman, but without a human father. The sign is fulfilled. Circumcision is no longer necessary. Sign complete. Everybody understand that? That is what is being pictured there. Everything pictures something when it is a sign in the Bible. The sign, the Sabbath is a sign. We are entering into God's rest in Christ Jesus. That's Hebrews 4 verse 3. Okay, um, the manna was a sign to the people of Israel. Jesus came and in John chapter 6 said, I am the bread of life. Okay, he, and he talked about the manna, getting it in the wilderness. He says, I'm the fulfillment of that. Okay, so the sign of circumcision, you must understand that that is why this is such an important tenet that Paul is speaking of, and because he's doing that, and because he speaks about it all the way through, it is the benchmark. I don't know if I was clear enough before, but that is why he's using this as the benchmark. It is the picture of Christ. If you don't have circumcision, you are not going to be saved in the covenant people, but after Christ comes, you can be saved without being circumcised, evidenced by Titus being approved by the people at the council. Why? Sign is fulfilled. Christ has come. Okay, that's the picture that we need to know. Okay, I hope I wasn't too long on that. If I was, I apologize. Later, it is noted that for a foreigner to come into the fold, they were required to be circumcised. That is found, oh, I quoted this one too a minute ago. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 12. All right, this is right at the Passover. Exodus chapter 12, verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. The Passover is also a sign. Guess what the sign is of? Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. He is the Passover lamb. Okay, um, no foreigner shall eat it. No foreigner shall eat the Passover. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Here it is. And when a stranger with you 
he is with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. How are you circumcised? Paul says it in Romans, Romans chapter 2. Circumcised not with the flesh, uh, with the cutting in the flesh, but in the heart, okay? That is where it's at. That's why the picture is fulfilled in Christ. We are now circumcised in the heart, which is, guess what? What Moses told the people they had to be as well. He told them right there in the book of Deuteronomy. It's repeated again, and then Jeremiah says it again. Jeremiah, you're uncircumcised in the heart, okay? The whole point of it is if you have the sign in the flesh and you don't have it in the heart, then you're not a true Jew. So that's what Paul brings up, the, the pun that he makes in Romans chapter 2 which is another rhyme, by the way. Okay, so here we go. Without meeting this moment, uh, important requirement, there was to be no inclusion of that person among the covenant people. If you're not circumcised, you cannot observe the Passover. If you are circumcised, you can observe the Passover, and you are considered as a native of the land. Okay, and yet, Titus was already saved, and he was there among the leaders of the church. If those same leaders determined that circumcision for Titus was required, the entire message of grace through faith would crumble and the church would be brought back into legalism and bondage, which is exactly what Hebrews root movement people want to do. I had somebody just this week tell me, he sent me an email and asked about uh, some things, or actually he sent a very interesting article, and um, or it was a YouTube video, I think. Anyway, um, uh, and when he was emailing me, he said that he was caught up in that Hebrew roots for a while, and he's free from that bondage. And you can tell when somebody's been in that and they get out, it's like people coming out of the Jehovah's Witnesses. It doesn't happen often, but when they do, there is a freedom in them. They're just like, oh, oh, it's just wonderful to get emails like that, to know that people are actually willing to step outside and say, maybe I'm wrong about this, okay? And all you have to do is read Galatians, and you'll know you're wrong about it, okay? But the whole message of grace through faith would crumble. Everybody would be brought back into legalism and into bondage, the yoke that Paul spoke about in Acts 15. However, he was not compelled to be circumcised, and the truth that Christ is the fulfillment of this requirement, and all of the law of Moses was realized and solidified for all time. Okay, I just said that Christ is the fulfillment of the requirement and all of the law of Moses. I'll tell you something else. Somebody else emailed me yesterday. I understand, but I don't know where to find it, that all of the feasts of the Lord are fulfilled. So I got it for you right here. I sent them all of the feasts of the Lord sermons, and I sent them the feasts of the Lord uh, written. And I said, whichever you want, or just read and watch at the same time. You will see. All of the feasts of the Lord are fulfilled. And if they're not, if one of the feasts of the Lord is not yet fulfilled, what does that mean? Christ did not fulfill the law. And if Christ didn't fulfill the law, we are still in our sins. That's correct. We are not saved. Okay. The law, all of it is fulfilled. There is nothing left of the law of Moses to be fulfilled for the believer. That doesn't mean that there aren't typological pictures coming, because as we'll see on Sunday, we've got typological pictures of Jews still not being saved. That is speaking of collective Israel, but Christ is the fulfillment of the mandates of the law. They're just waiting to catch up, and they will someday. They will catch up, okay? But until they do, all of the law of Moses is fulfilled. Every feast of the Lord, there is no feast. Feast of Trumpets is not a picture of the rapture, folks. It is a picture of the birth of Jesus Christ, okay, the day that he was born. The Feast of Trumpets is not the Feast of Trumpets anyway. It's Yom Teruah, which means the Feast of Acclamation. doesn't say anything about trumpets, okay? If they blew trumpets on that day, which they did, it's irrelevant about the fact that 
it's not the, the trumpet of the rapture. Okay, that's a misreading of the entire verse. Okay, understanding this precept. Okay, the law of Moses is done. It is fulfilled and Christ has done it all. Understanding this precept concerning this most important aspect of Jewish covenant life. We can look at any lesser aspect. I'm talking about circumcision. We can look at any lesser aspect and know that it is also set aside because of the work of Jesus Christ. The law is done. Church doctrine is then established from this point on. We don't go backward. We go forward. Okay, as this occurred in Acts 15, where the decision was published for all the Gentile churches to read and accept, then we can know that Paul's epistles set the parameters for church doctrine and conduct as they are rendered after that point in time. Everybody see the logic in that? We don't go back before Acts 15. That sets the initial guideline or the baseline. And then from there, everything that Paul writes is now set church doctrine for the rest of the church age. We can't go back, we can only go forward, all right? In that point in time, and they follow immediately after the book of Acts. God has structured the Bible exactly perfectly so that we can see exactly perfectly what he is doing in redemptive history. The Gospels reveal the fulfillment. John reveals that Jews and Gentiles together are going to be saved, but we don't understand it yet. It needs to be explained, and then we get to the book of Acts, and it is like a flower opening up and showing us the transition, and then we get into Paul's epistles, setting the doctrine for the church age. After that comes, of course, other important epistles, which do apply in many ways to us, but they're given in a Jewish perspective because the Jews missed the point, whereas the Gentiles didn't. We don't need to be told that our Sabbath rest is in Christ because we never had a Sabbath, Sabbath rest, right? No, no Gentile on the planet ever observed a Sabbath. And so that was not necessary for Paul to be dwelling on that issue as he does in Paul, yes, is the author of uh, Hebrews. That's why I say him, but I don't want to be dogmatic, but I believe he's the author of Hebrews in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter three and four. The reason why he does that, goes into that great Sabbath teaching, is because it's applying to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. The only thing Paul does in his writings, like he does in Galatians, is, for example, in um, Ephesians chapter 2, where it is, Ephesians 2 or Colossians 2, where he says, why are you observing Sabbaths? Why are you doing that? Does it even apply to you? What are you doing? Okay, but the reason why he doesn't give any explanation of those things is because it's not necessary. We were never under the Sabbath, and therefore it doesn't apply. Everything is moving forward in Scripture. You can't go back and ob obtain your theology from a previous point in time if there is something that's already set at a certain point in time. Okay, It's an important thing to remember because we just keep doing this to ourselves. But it says in Matthew 24, blah, 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 and we start applying Matthew 24 to the church and the rapture and all these things when it has nothing to do with the church. Zero. Matthew 24 has nothing to do with the church. It has everything to do with Jesus speaking to Israel under the law. This is what's coming upon you people. Okay? Just that it's happening 2,000 years later doesn't dismiss the fact that it is going to happen, okay? And it's not going to happen to the church. Okay, what? Tribulation. Tribulation, period. That's right. That's what he's speaking about. But that is something that we need to be careful and not go back into those chapters and verses and say, okay, I'm going to apply my uh, eschatology, my end times theology from the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's inappropriate because it has nothing to do with us. Nobody was... Whatever. Okay, I don't want to argue with people over it, but it's just bad theology to do that. We get our eschatology from Paul. 
And he's very clear about it. We're going to have a rapture. It's going to be pre-tribulation. And we're going to be out of here. I don't need to go any further than that. I, why would I want to go through the tribulation period? Who wants to do that? Oh, okay. Um, yes, Jewish covenant life church doctrine is established from this point on. Got it. Okay, life application. If someone tells you that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved, tell them, take a hike, heretic. Stand on your faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Okay? That's all you need to do. 2-4. I think we're going to have time for 2-4. Yes. Okay, quickly. Um, sign. O-T-H. What? No, O-T-H. And I'll tell you, the first time it's used in the Bible, I'm going to take you right back here. One of those interesting little things. It says right here, um, hang on. Permanent, okay, permanent, okay. Let the water, no, day four. Hang on, where is it? Third day. And it, yeah, here it is, uh, Genesis 1.14. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for ot, signs and seasons. He put signs before seasons. They're to point to something else, okay? The seasons is obvious. Time to plant, time to harvest, time to do this, time to do that. It's getting hot, you know, whatever. The seasons are obvious because we're creatures that depend on the seasons. And, you know, we can't eat if we don't plant now and all that kind of stuff. But the signs comes first. The sun and the moon and the stars and all these things up there are for signs. Now, I'm not saying to get goofy with that, but God put them there so that we can see the redemptive plan. I don't like to get into that because some people take it too far. They take it to extremes. But guess what Job speaks of in the book of Job? Orion the bear what are those constellations those are there for a reason okay if you want to understand a little bit of it i didn't go into any great detail on it but a little bit of it you go into genesis chapter 49 the blessing of jacob upon his sons if i deal with that the 12 constellations the zodiacs have been misused by all of the people of the world but all of the people of the world know that they're there for a reason i don't care where you go on this planet they know that those Zodiac are the same, aren't they? Everybody knows that. So there is a redemptive plan that's written in the heavens, okay? They are for signs and for seasons, all right? I don't want, once again, that is not my specialty. I am not good at it. I don't want to, I, I don't want people to email me a lot of stuff on that because way too many people get way too far off on that. It is, those things will be known when they happen. It's like the Star of Bethlehem. It was known when it happened. I don't need to argue about this sign that's coming next Friday that's going to be the rapture. That's not going to happen. We've got a, a comment up there right now, and people will, I'm sure if you go to rapture, rapture websites, which I don't go to, but if you go to them right now, they're talking about this as being a sign of the rapture, and the rapture is going to be next Tuesday at 3 o'clock. Okay, that is inappropriate use of that particular theology, all right, or that particular uh, concept of theology. So don't do that. But they are there for that. And when those things happen, we will know because they have happened. Okay. Not before, but after. The prophecy. Lord has to do what? Prophecy is not to predict. That's right. To know who to give the credit to. That when it, it that's very good. It's not to predict, but to know who to give the credit to when it happens. That's the purpose of prophecy. That is very well stated because, uh, you know, th that's a good summary right there. We'll leave it at that. Go, go ahead. I think you said it. Oh, I might have said Maybe I did say it. Okay, well, then that's very profound of me. <laughs> I, whatever. If I did say that, I forgot I said it, but wow. Okay. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. 
Okay, little difference, so I'll read it. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly bought in, who, parentheses, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Bondage and slaves, a little different, but close parentheses there. Okay. Well, they sneaked in. <laughs> yeah, they sneaked in. That's, and that's exactly what they did. They crept in. They sneaked in. They were stealthy. And that's what they do in churches. People sneak into churches. And that's what Jude talks about in the verses I read you today. Right in Jude, he uses that term. They crept in. These people secretly sneak in. And they, they never come in overtly. They just come in and they sneak in. And all of a sudden, an entire denomination falls apart. I got somebody shaking that person's head in the church right now because they know that it's happening in a particular denomination that this person, male or female, happens to uh, know intimately. So uh, it, it's sad because you see it happening, and how do you stop it? The yeast is in there, the bread starts to rise, and pretty soon everything is infected. Okay, all right, verse 2-4. This verse is referring to the previous one where Paul said that not even Titus, who was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. His words now build upon that. Paul would not budge on this issue because it would not lead to freedom, but to bondage. This attempt to have... Titus circumcised was because of, as he says, false brethren. The term Paul uses to describe them is found only here and in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. It is those who were brethren in name only, but false in their Christian life. Paul uses an article, the false brethren, to show that they were by this time a well-known group of miscreants. They were anti-grace Judaizers who wanted to control who wanted control over the body, not freedom for it. And we've got them all over the church today, all over. Yeah. These false brethren were secretly brought in, as Paul says. The word used here is pareskatos, pareskatos. It is found only here in the New Testament, and it means brought in by the side and so insidiously and illegally. Vincent's word study says that they were brought in not from Jerusalem into the church at Antioch, nor into the Pauline churches generally, but into the Christian brotherhood to which they did not rightfully belong. They are completely false brethren, and that's why the article is there. They are the false brethren, meaning they're not brethren at all. Paul continues his words by saying that these worthless false brethren are those, his words, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus. Charles Ellicott notes that the terms came in by stealth and secretly brought in are words which correspond to each other in the Greek and bring out in a graphic and force, forcible way the insidious and designing character of the party most violently opposed to St. Paul. Professing to be Christians, they were really Jews of the narrowest sort who only entered into the church to spy into it and restrict its liberties. And I posted yesterday, I haven't read any comment from the post because I've had a very busy day, but yesterday I posted that when I was in, do I have time for this? Yes, um, when I was in the Air Force, I went in in 1984. And when I went in, I used the term in my post, cheesy videos, because they were, they were cheesy. We had to watch all these dumb, kind of like indoctrination videos at the beginning of our time in the Air Force. And the videos were like, 1950s quality you know that bad music that it just sounds like it's horns that are just blaring a little too loud or something and you're like oh not another one and the message i remember it was like i was sitting there yesterday the message was these people want to control our nation 
These people want to undermine our nation. And here's the things they're going to do. They're going to promote homosexuality. They're going to promote this. They're going to promote that. They're going to uh, want to remove the beautiful statues. And they, they, they went through everything that we are talking about in the world right now. And they, they went through it and they said that the communist agenda is... And I was sitting there, and the reason why I call them cheesy especially is because I was sitting there thinking, this is the United States of America, and this will never happen. It will never happen. This nation is set, it is grounded, and this will never happen. And I, what, 30-some years ago, it is as if what they said, you turn on the news today and it is exactly what's happening, and it's the same group of people. It doesn't matter if it's religious or if it's political people have an agenda and how do they do it they come in by the side door and they stealthily work their way in and they happen to do it through the democrat party of the united states of america and they are now full-blown they don't even shame they're not shameful to say it anymore before they try to distance themselves from it they say we are communists we've got them right in the halls right now saying that they're socialists and communists and this is what they want well guess what they're doing in the churches in america right now we're hebrew roots movement this is we're going back to the law of moses they, they're not even shameful about it anymore. They just openly proclaim it, and people are so desensitized to it that it doesn't matter. But you see, politics follows with religion. I mean, this nation is a religious nation for a reason, and when we lose our religion, we lose our politics. Everything is, everything is connected together. But what Paul is saying here is absolutely what's happening to the United States of America. We'll go on. Um, why they had to make sure that churches couldn't talk about politics. That's right. It's 501c3. Get them into that type of thinking, and then they won't be able to say anything, and people will be shut up. And even if it's not true, with the 501c3, you have a lot more freedom than they say you have. But the problem is that people will come in and sue your church to have your church be quiet. And you can't afford to take on their lawyers, and so you say, well, we're not going to say that anymore. So it, it, it's it's an yeah. insidious thing that's happened in America. We got to go on where we got just another minute. In other words, not only were these false brethren, but they were also those who actively worked against the truth of the gospel. Some false brethren may come in and want to leech off of the fellowship. Others might want to just have something to do or someone to fellowship with, even if they don't believe what is being discussed by the brothers. But these people had a set and perverse agenda to destroy the truth of the grace of Christ. That was their agenda, and that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to destroy the grace of Christ, and that's what's happened in churches all over America. It is an agenda with a specific purpose, which was that they might bring us into bondage. Paul's words. If the grace of Christ is that which brings freedom and liberty, then something opposed to it can only bring bondage. Paul will very clearly explain in his words to come that the law of Moses is bondage. Paul, Peter already did that, Acts chapter 15. He's going to say it again. He's going to use that exact word, bondage, several times. It can only show us what is sinful, but it can no way, in no way free us from our sin. Only Christ can do that. The false brethren knew that if they could diminish the grace of Christ, those who believed their message would be brought into bondage. And anyone in bondage has someone over them to enforce that state. Thus, their intent was a power grab, and their desire was to be the ones in power over the Galatians. And that's what happens in churches all over the world constantly. Because grace is just too simple. It's too good, and we can't allow people to have it because then we can't get their money out of them. We can't have our control over them. They become our slaves when we take away the grace. And they know that. 
They know that, and so that's where they attack. It's right at the heart of the gospel which Paul preaches. Life application. If you believe that you should be observing any or all of the law of Moses, you have been deceived. If you teach that to others, you are a heretic. Don't be deceived and do not be a heretic. Receive the freedom which truly sets you free. Receive Christ Jesus. And we got to close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom that we do have, both in this nation as free citizens, which we're losing very quickly, and we thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ, which so many people are willingly giving up so freely today, just giving it up so that they can go back under bondage. And we would pray that eyes would be opened, that hearts would be turned, and that they would see the truth of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, which sets all people free, where they can stand in a church with their hands raised high and weep tears of joy at the freedom that they have in you because of the wonderful work which is found in what you did for us, giving your life for our sins. What wonderful joy we have because of what you have done and help our hearts to be open to it and always soft and tender to the fact that you did these things. May we never become so bound up in our, our doctrine that we forget the grace which was poured out on us by Jesus Christ. Thank you for that grace and we thank you for Jesus and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's put this on break. Yes.